A tale that starts off with a misdirection. A bear definitely overstays its welcome. Strange poems and even stranger tales of a detective who betrays an old woman by marrying her daughter, leading to a strange and disastrous end for the mother. Mate, this whole episode is wacky and strange, not over the top, but just has bizarre stories, is written strangely, and, well, you'll see. I bring you Tales from Cobwebs of an Empty Skull by Dodd Grillet, published in 1874. I have to say this author writes ahead of their time and pokes fun at their audience and the norms of the time. I totally stumbled across them, and their wit, choice of words, and blatant disregard for what their audience wants or expects in a story is refreshing and hilarious yet hard to follow at times. You'll see what I mean in the very, very first story. So let me know what you think. If you want more from this author, let me know. Uh, there is something charming about the writing, and just thinking about it, I'm sure you can hear it in my voice, I really, really enjoyed it. Having it been written in 1874, the terminology is old and may offend, so apologies, but it's nothing I think we can't handle. A big shout out to Andrew Benazi, my latest Earl Grey enforcer literally minutes ago. Thank you so much, mate. You reached out to me just now on where to find me on Patreon, and boom, just like that, an old great enforcer. What a legend. So cheers, mate, and I look forward to your story. If you want to support the show, visit www.patreon forward slash sfgt.com and you'll find me. More details at the end, though. You're here for tales, not a plug, right? Let's get straight into the tales. The Grateful Bear I hope all my little readers have heard the story of Mr. Andruckles and the Lion, so I will relate it as nearly as I can remember it, with the caution that Andruckles must not be confounded with the Lion. If I had a picture representing Andruckles with a silk hat, and the Lion with a knot in his tail, the two might readily be distinguished. But the artist says he won't make any such picture, and we must try to get on without. One day, Andruckles was gathering truffles in a forest, when he found the lion's den, and, walking into it, he lay down and slept. It was a custom in his time to sleep in lion dens when practicable. The lion was absent, inspecting a zoological garden, and did not return until late. But he did return. He was surprised to find a stranger in his menagerie without a ticket, but supposing him to be some contributor to a comic paper did not eat him. He was very well satisfied not to be eaten by him. Presently, Andruckles awoke, wishing he had some seltzer water or something. Seltzer water is good after a night's debauch, and something, it is difficult to say what, is good to begin the new debauch with. Seeing the lion eyeing him, he began hastily to pencil his last will and testament upon the rocky floor of the den. What was his surprise to see the lion advance amicably and extend his right forefoot? Andruckles, however, was equal to the occasion. He met the friendly overture with a cordial grasp of the hand, whereat the lion howled. 
for he had a carpet tack in his foot. Perceiving that he had made a little mistake, Androckles made such reparation as was in his power by pulling out the tack and putting it in his own foot. After this, the beast could not do much for him. He went out every morning, carefully locking the door behind him, and returned every evening, bringing in a nice, fat baby from an adjacent village, and laying it gratefully at his benefactor's feet. For the first few days, something seemed to have gone wrong with the benefactor's appetite, but presently, he took very kindly to the new diet, and, as he could not get away, he lodged there, rent-free, all the days of his life, which terminated very abruptly one evening, when the lion had not met with his usual success in hunting. All this has very little to do with my story. I throw it in as a classical allusion to meet the demands of a literary fashion, which has its origin in the generous eagerness of writers to give the public more than it pays for. But the story of Androckles was a favourite with the bear, whose adventures I am about to relate. One day this crafty brute carefully inserted a thorn between two of his toes and limped awkwardly to the farmhouse of Dane Pinworthy, a widow who, with two beautiful whelps, infested the forest where he resided. He knocked at the open door, sent in his card, and was duly admitted to the presence of the lady, who inquired his purpose by way of defining his position. He held up his foot and snuffled very deloriously. The lady adjusted her spectacles, took the paw in her lap. She, too, had heard the tale of Androckles, and, after a close scrutiny, discovered the thorn, which, as delicately as possible, she extracted, the patient making wry faces and howling dismally the while. When it was all over, and she had assured him there was no charge, his gratitude was a passion to observe. He desired to embrace her at once, but this, although a widow of seven years standing, she would by no means permit. She said she was not personally averse to hugging. What would her dilly departed Boohoo say of it? This was very absurd. For Mr. Boohoo had seven feet of solid earth above him, and it couldn't make much difference what he said. Even supposing he had enough tongue left to say anything, which he had not. However, the polite beast respected her scruples, so the only way in which he could testify his gratitude was by remaining to dinner. They had the house dog for dinner that day, though for some false notion of hospitable etiquette, the women and children did not take any. On the next day, punctually at the same hour, the bear came again with another thorn and stayed to dinner as before. It was not much of a dinner this time, only the cat and a roll of stair carpet with one or two pieces of sheet music, but true gratitude does not despise even the humblest means of gratitude. The succeeding day he came as before, but after being relieved of his torment, he found nothing prepared for him. But when he talked to thoughtfully licking one of the girl's hands, that answered not with a caress, the mother thought better of it and drove in a small heifer. He now came every day, he was so old a friend that the formality of extracting the thorn was no longer observed. 
it would have contributed nothing to the good understanding that existed between him and the widow. He thought that three of four instances of good Samaritanism afforded ample matter for perpetual gratitude. His constant visits were bad for the livestock of the farm, for some kind of beast had to be in readiness each day to furnish forth the usual feast, and this prevented multiplication. Most of the textile fabrics, too, had disappeared, for the appetite of this animal was at the same time cosmopolitan and exacting. It would accept almost anything in the way of entreatments, but something it would have. A hearth rug, a hall mat, a cushion, mattress, blanket, shawl, or other article of wearing apparel. Anything, in short, that was easy of ingestion was graciously approved. The widow once tried him with a box of coals as dessert to some barnyard fowls, but this it seemed he found doubtful, comestible, and seductive to the palate, but obstinate in the stomach. A look at one of the children always brought him something else, no matter what he was then engaged on. It was suggested to Mrs. Pinworth that she should poison the bear, but after trying about a hundredweight of strychnia, arsenic and prussic acid, without any effect other than what might be expected from mild tonics, she thought it would not be right to go into toxicology. So the poor widow, Pinworthy, patiently enduring the consumption of her cattle, sheep and hogs, the evaporation of her poultry, and the taking off of her bed linen, until there were left only the clothing of herself and children, some curtains, a sickly lamb, and a pet pigeon. When the bear came for these, she ventured to expostulate. In this, she was perfectly successful. The animal permitted her to expostulate as long as she liked. Then he ate the lamb, and pigeon, took in a dishcloth or two, and went away just as contently as if she had not uttered a word. Nothing edible now stood between her little daughters and the grave. Her mental agony was painful to her mind. She could scarcely have suffered more without an increase of unhappiness. She was roused to desperation. And next day, when she saw the bear leaping across the fields towards the house, she staggered from her seat and shut the door. It was singular. What a difference it made. She always remembered it after that, and wished she had thought of it before. The Setting Satcham Twas an Indian chieftain, in feathers all fine, who stood on the ocean's rim. There were numberless leagues of endless brine, but there wasn't enough for him. So he knuckled a thumb in his painted eye, and added a tear to the scant supply. The surges were breaking with thunderous voice, the winds were a shrieking shrill. This warrior thought that a trifle of noise was needed to fill the bill. So he lifted the top of his head off and scowled, exalted his voice to this chieftain and howled. The sun was aflame in a field of gold that hung over the western sea. Bright banners of light were broadly unrolled, as banners of light should be. But no one was speaking a piece to the sun, and therefore this medicine man begun. O much heap of bright, O big ball of warm, I tracked you from sea to sea. For the paleface has been at some pains to inform me, you are the emblem of me. He says to me cheerfully, Westward ho! 
and westward I've hoed a most difficult row. Since you are the emblem of me, I presume, that I am the emblem of you, and thus, as we're equals, it is safe to assume that one great law governs us too. So now, if I set in the ocean with thee, with thee I shall rise again out of the sea. His eloquence first, and his logic the last. Such orators die, and he died. The trump was against him, his luck bad. He passed, and so he passed out with the tide. The engine is rid of the world with a whim. The world it is rid of his speeches, and him. Theodora Madame Yon Smith was a decayed gentlewoman who carried on her decomposition in a modest wayward cottage in Thuringia. She was an excellent sample of the Thuringian widow, a species not yet extinct but trying very hard to become so. The same may be said of the whole genus. Madame Yon Smith was quite young, very comely, cultivated, gracious, and pleasing. Her home was a nest of domestic virtues, but she had a daughter who reflected but little credit upon the nest. Theodora was indeed a bad egg, a very wicked and ungrateful egg. You could see she was by her face. The girl had the most vicious countenance. It was repulsive. It was a face in which boldness struggled for the supremacy with cunning, and both were thrashed into subjugation by avarice. It was this latter virtue in Theodora which kept her mother from having a taxable income. Theodora's business was to beg on the highway. It wrung the heart of the honest, amiable gentlewoman to have her daughter do this, but the hag, having been reared in luxury, considered labour degrading, which it is, and there was not much to steal in that part of Thuringia. Theodora's mendicity would have proved an ample fund for their support, but unhappily that ingrate would hardly ever fetch home more than two or three shillings at a time. Goodness knows what she did with the rest. Vainly, the good woman pointed out the sin of covetousness. Vainly, she would stand at the cottage door, waiting for her child to return, and began arguing the point with her the moment she came in sight. The receipts diminished daily, until the average was less than tenpence, a sum upon which no born gentlewoman would deign to exist. So, it became a matter of some importance to where Theodora kept her banking account. Madame Yunsmith thought at first she would follow her and see, but although the good lady was as vigorous and sprightly as ever, carrying a crutch more for ornament than use, she abandoned this plan because it did not seem suitable to the dignity of a decayed gentlewoman. She employed a detective. The foregoing particulars I have are from Madame Yonsmith herself. For those immediately subjoining, I am indebted to the detective, a skilful officer named Balstier. No sooner had the scraggy old hag communicated her suspicions that the officer knew exactly what to do. He first distributed handbills all over the country, stating that a certain person suspected of concealing money had better look sharp. He then went to the Home Secretary, and by not seeking to understate the real difficulties of the case, induced that functionary to offer a reward of a thousand pounds for the arrest of the malefactor. Next, he proceeded to a distant town, and took into custody a clergyman who resembled Theodora in respect of wearing shoes. After these formal preliminaries, 
he took up the case with some zeal. He was not at all actuated by a desire to obtain the reward, but by pure love of justice. The thought of securing the girl's private hoard for himself never for a moment entered his head. He began to make frequent calls at the widow's cottage when Theodora was at home, when, by apparently careless conversation, he would endeavour to draw her out, but he was commonly frustrated by her old beast of a mother who, when the girl's answers did not suit, would beat her unmercifully. So he took to meeting Theodora on the highway and giving her coppers carefully marked. For months he kept this up with wonderful self-sacrifice, the girl being a mere uninteresting angel. He met her daily in the roads and forest, his patience never wearied, his vigilance never flagged. Her most careless glances were conscientiously noted, her lightest words treasured up in her memory. Meanwhile, the clergyman having been unjustly acquitted, he arrested everybody he could get his hands on. Matters went on this way until it was time for the Grand Coup. The succeeding particulars I have are from the lips of Theodora herself. When the horrid Balstier first came to the house, Theodora thought he was rather impudent, but said little about it to her mother, not desiring to have her back broken. She merely avoided him as much as she dared. He was so frightfully ugly, but she managed to endure him until he took to waylaying her on the highway, hanging about her all day, interfering with the customers and walking home with her at night. Then her dislike deepened into disgust, and but for apprehensions not wholly unconnected with a certain crutch, she would have sent him about his business in short order. More than a thousand million times, she told him to be off and leave her alone. But men are such fools, particularly this one. What made Balstier exceptionally disagreeable was his shameless habit of making fun of Theodora's mother, whom he declared crazy as a loon. But the maiden bore everything as well as she could, until one day, the nasty thing put his arm about her waist and kissed her before every face. Then she felt, well, it's not clear how she felt, but for one thing, she was quite sure. After having such a shame put upon her by the insolent brute, she would never go back under her dear mother's roof. Never. She was too proud for that, at any rate. So she ran away with Mr. Bowster and married him. The conclusion of this history I learned for myself. Upon hearing of her daughter's desertion, Madame Yonsmith went clean daft. She vowed she could bear betrayal could endure decay, could stand being a widow, would not repine at being left alone in her old age, whenever she would become old, and could patiently submit to the sharper than a serpent's thanks of having a toothless child, generally. But to be a mother-in-law? No, no. That was a plane of degradation to which she positively would not descend. So, she employed me to cut her throat. It was the toughest throat I ever cut in all my life. The Legend of Immortal Truth A bear, having spread him a notable feast, invited a famishing fox to the place. I've killed me, quoth he, 
an edible beast, as ever distended the girdle of priest, with spread of religion or inward grace, to my den I conveyed her, I bled her and flayed her, I hung up her skin to dry, then laid her naked to keep her cool, on a slab of ice from the frozen pool, and there we will eat her, you and I. The fox accepts, and away they walk, beguiling the time with courteous talk. You'd near have suspected to see them smile. The bear was thinking the blessed while. How, when his guest should be off his guard, with feasting hard, he'd give him a wipe that would spoil his style. You'd never have thought to see them bow. The fox was reflecting deeply how he would best proceed to circumvent his host and prig, the entire pig, or other bird to the same intent. When strength and cunning in love combine, be sure to is to more than merely dine. The while these bitters ply the lip, a mile ahead the muse shall skip. The poet's purpose she best may serve, inside the den, if she have the nerve. Behold, laid out in dark recess, a ghastly goat in stark undress, pallid and still, on her gellard bed, and indisputably very dead. Her skin depends from a couple of pins. And here the most singular statement begins. For all at once the butchered beast, with easy grace for one deceased, upreared her head, looked around, and said, very distinctly from one so dead, The nights are sharp, and the sheets are thin. I find it uncommonly cold herein. I answer not how this was wrought. All miracles surpass my thought. They are vexing, say you, and dementing. Peace, peace, they're none of my inventing, but lest too much of mystery embarrass this true history. I'll not relate how that this goat stood up and stamped her feet to inform him. With, what's the word, I mean, to warm him. Nor how she plucked her rough capote from off the pegs were bruin through it, and o'er her quaking body drew it, nor how each act could so befall. I only swear she did them all, then lingered pensive in the grot, as if she something had forgot, till a humble voice and a voice of pride were heard in murmurs of love outside. Then, like a rocket set aflight, she sprang and streaked it for the light. Ten million million years a day have rolled since these events away, but still the peasant at fall of night, belated there near, is oft affright by sounds of a phantom bear in flight, a breaking of branches under the hill, the noise of a going when all is still, and hens asleep on the perch they say, cackle sometimes in a startled way, as if they were dreaming a dream that mocks the lope and whiz of a fleeting fox. Half we're taught and teach to youth, and praise by rote is not but merely stands for truth. So of my goat, she's merely designed to represent the truth immortal to this extent. Dead she may be and skinned frappe, hid in a dreadful den away. Pray to the churches any will do, except the church of me and you. The simplest miracle even then will get her up and about again. So, what did you all think? Enjoyed it? Too random? Maybe a bit too on the nose? The more I read of this author, the more I begin to understand their style. They write tongue-in-cheek. For those of you who never have heard of that phrase, 
it means writing in an ironic or insincere way, and in this case with the intention to skip the norms of writing motifs. I think I'll give the author another shot. Unless all of you awesome listeners send me some hate mail about it, and I'll do something completely different. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll pick some different stories from today's book to broaden the range of what you're listening to. That should paint a better picture regarding the author's style. Also, if you want to reach me for any reason, I particularly love it when I hear experiences you've had or story recommendations. Contact me on stories, fables, ghostly tales at gmail.com. And should you want to support me and the show, leave an iTunes review, that would be fantastic, and swing by my Patreon page. There are three tiers, $1 per month, 3 per month, and 5 per month, with a range of benefits, so check it out if you like. And every dollar is fed right back into the show. Money well spent. I'm actually really excited when I get to a point where I can pay authors or other narrators to be on the show. That's something that I really look forward to. But I won't keep you from your next episode or next show. Keep awesome. Thank you for listening. And as always, till next we meet.